Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, quarantine confusion. Certainly, uh, the issue of international travel, as you know, is a delicate and contentious one. An expert panel says the government's quarantine hotels at the borders should be shut down. Will the federal government follow their advice? And will Canadians who got AstraZeneca soon be able to mix and match vaccines for their second dose? We'll ask the health minister, Patty Hyde. Then, a mass grave of 215 Indigenous children at a residential school has been found. Why was this hidden for so long? How many more mass graves might there be? The National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Belgar, joins us. Plus, lab leak. We need a completely transparent process from China. We need the WHO to assist in that matter. We don't feel like we have that now. Did the COVID pandemic start with a leak from the research lab in Wuhan, China? Why is Canada calling for more investigations? We'll talk to Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Martin Garneau about that. All that plus Quebec as a nation. Can Quebec really change the constitution by itself and declare itself a nation? The Scrum will weigh in on that with the former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Is it time to check out of those quarantine hotels at the border? Well, that's now the question. After all the controversy about these quarantine hotels, should they be installed for land travel as well as air travel? Should they be dismantled entirely? Now the Federal Advisory Panel on Testing and Screening is weighed in. Close them down. Why? Well, the panel gives a myriad of reasons. They're expensive. Some people just pay the $3,000 fee and just leave with no other quarantine plan. Others simply go on land and avoid them altogether. The panel says travelers should simply submit their own isolation plan for approval instead. They added border measures should be consistent for land and for air so they can close the loopholes that some have used to avoid these pricey hotels. But provinces like Ontario want tougher measures at the border, not less stringent ones. So what will the federal government do? And with news that the AstraZeneca doses that were set to expire on Monday tomorrow now being extended to July, is the mixed messaging around vaccines contributing to vaccine hesitancy? To talk about that and more, we're joined now by the Federal Minister of Health, Patty Haidu. Minister, good to have you on the program. And let's talk about the communication around these vaccines because it keeps changing. You've got the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, an independent advisory group. I know it was established decades ago. They're giving press conferences about, say, AstraZeneca, warning about blood clots and issues and what's a preferred vaccine. Then you've got Health Canada saying, we think the best vaccine is the first one you can get. It's all obviously very confusing to people. All these agencies report to you. Have you thought it's time to just streamline the communication to clarify all this because the system is contributing to well, vaccine well, I'll hesitancy? Well, I'll just say, actually, Evan, there's no evidence that it has contributed to hesitancy. What we've seen from polling, a variety of different kinds of polling, is that actually Canadians are more eager than ever to get immunized. 88% of Canadians I'm are talking about saying, hesitancy around AstraZeneca, though. I, I've just talked to a lot of health officials who say there is hesitancy around AstraZeneca. Well, there may be hesitancy based on the advice of their, uh, you know, their practitioners. And, and, and But listen, what again, what I'll just say is hesitancy overall, it's not there. We see 88% of Canadians saying they've either been immunized with their first dose or they plan to get immunized as soon as it's available to their particular category. And that's great news, Evan. So I will reiterate, you know, things are evolving. Things right. are changing as we learn more about 
these novel vaccines right. and the virus. We will continue to provide transparent evidence-based right. advice to Canadians. I will say you got pollsters like Angus Reid who have said actually confidence in something like Pfizer is 92%, confidence in AstraZeneca is like 35%. So AstraZeneca is a different case study. But I, I want to move to the vaccine rollout because your government promised for a long time that Canada would be getting 48 million vaccines by the end of June. Tomorrow, June starts. It appears it's going to be around between 40 and 42 million. Uh, how can provinces um, calibrate their reopening plans, which are contingent upon vaccines, if they don't know how many doses they're going to get? So will this shortage of, well, I guess, the fewer doses we're going to get, millions of fewer doses, will that affect reopening plans? Well, I can't speak to each province and territory's reopening plans, but I will say what they've generally pegged as rates of vaccination, and they've been very clear in most of the plans that I've seen to be specific that it's a combination of vaccination rate coverage, but also the activity of the disease. And that's prudent. I think we need to be watching both measures. How many people are vaccinated? And as you know, Dr. Tam indicated that her comfort level is 75% first dose, 20% full vaccination, but also how much disease activity is happening in our region. And that's another very important metric. And it's wise that they've included that in these reopening plans. Okay, but provinces aren't listening to that. And as the health minister, I'm intrigued. The, the federal threshold for reopening is 75% one dose, 20% two doses. You've got Alberta at 50% one dose. You've got Saskatchewan at 70%, others at 60%. Uh, are you comfortable that this patchwork system is going on? Are you as the health minister worried that some provinces are going to start, like Alberta, they're going to start reopening this week at 50% thresholds with one dose? That's totally different than the federal recommendation. Will you be speaking to them? Well, we have regular conversations together every couple of weeks. The health ministers meet and talk about a variety of different topics, including reopening. Again, I would reiterate that the important metric to also watch besides vaccination is the disease activity. And we've seen through the first wave, the second wave, the third wave, that modeling uh, that predicts, you know, if you release those measures too quickly, that, uh, you know, the next wave can be much more severe. And I would hope that the provinces and territories are listening to their science tables, watching those metrics very carefully and not using metrics like uh, ICU admissions, which we know are it's right. far too late. Well, let's be specific. You're looking at what's going on right now in Manitoba. They have this terrible snapback and they're in the midst of it. The military's there. The, you know, the Red Cross is there. Let's just look at the most aggressive plan to reopen is Alberta's right now. Not long ago, they were one of the hot spots. Are you concerned they're going too quickly? Again, uh, it depends on what metrics they're going to watch and what they're prepared to do should they see even an increase in cases even so slightly. And so this is what they need to be focused on. Are they watching the right met metrics? It's not just a vaccination right. approach. It's also making sure that they have the capacity to be able to contact trace, to get on those outbreaks really quickly. And we've been talking about this now for a year and a half. I hope that we've all learned some very important lessons about how quickly growth can spiral out of control if we don't take those immediate actions when we see outbreaks and, and, and various case growths. Uh, there is a steady stream of Pfizer, we know. but. Moderna has been very unreliable. I know they're getting about two, finally two million more Moderna. We're, we're expecting a mid-June. But given the unreliability of that particular vaccine provider, would you recommend provinces only give Pfizer as first shots if they can't trust the steady shipment of Moderna? Uh, well, listen, 
I would say that the provinces and territories are working really efficiently with the Vaccine Operations Centre, which is monitoring all of those shipments, works closely with procurement, gives provinces and territories up to the date, up to the minute, really, information about any changes in shipment. Those decisions are best made by provinces and territories, but I will say this, we continually have those open conversations so provinces can adjust their immunization strategy as they can anticipate that flow. The Federal Advisory Panel on Travel and Testing put out a report on Friday, and it said your government should end the hotel quarantine for international travel, and that if you're partially vaccinated and have a negative COVID test, you only need to quarantine for seven days. First, is your government going to end the quarantine hotels and heed these recommendations? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is have that conversation that I keep talking about with provinces and territories because we've worked on the border, as you know, in partnership with those uh, with, with those partners. And in fact, some provinces have been very vocal about no changes at the border. So first, I have to understand the comfort level of their particular perspective. And of course, you know, this gives us a very valuable roadmap. We know the border is not going to stay closed forever. And this um, very thoughtful piece of work from the testing and screening panel will give us all um, uh, essentially a plan for how we right. alleviate those measures in a cautious and careful way. But, but I'm just trying to figure this out because throughout the pandemic, you, you've consistently said, you know, the government's going to listen to the experts when it comes to making big decisions. You've hung on the word of, as you talked about, NASI. Now you've got the federal advisory panel. They're making these recommendations and these recommendations are pretty thorough, right? They talk about how this is not really working that well. People just pay the fine and then they just drive through. There's inconsistencies between the land versus the air travelers. Why not listen to the panel in this case? Oh, you know, listen, the panel has provided, as I said, an excellent roadmap for next steps on the border. But what I want to do is make sure that I have the comfort level of the ministers uh, of health from across the country. It's really important that we work on this together. And I want to make sure that every province and territory understands the next steps and is, is comfortable with the next steps. This is this is no time to be, um, you know, acting unilaterally. We need to act together. Right. And we've always done that. We've always had these conversations. And so, as I said earlier in the press conference, the next step is for me to discuss this report with my colleagues and then come to some conclusions on right. the next step. But, but, but again, I, I've read the report. They are basically saying that these quarantine hotels, they're too expensive. It's a patchwork. They're not that useful. People get out. They, they pay their money to get out and they don't have a good quarantine plan. They're saying just get rid of it. Let everyone have a quarantine plan. I, I'm just trying to figure out. I know that you know, Ontario is saying put more quarantine hotels in, uh, even at land borders. But you've got the federal advisory panel. When do you think your government's going to listen to them and finally get rid of these quarantine hotels? Well, as, as I said, uh, you know, we're very happy with the report from the uh, committee. It gives us a very clear and I think cautious and prudent way to start to address measures at the border and to alleviate them, in particular for vaccinated individuals. But I will reiterate. I want the perspectives of the health ministers from across the country. I want to hear their perspective. I want to hear their comfort level, and, and I'll do that at the next right. convenient meeting. Okay, coming up, more from the health minister. Should you be allowed to mix and match your vaccines, and will you need a vaccine passport to travel when things start to open up? Patty Heidi is still with us on the other side of a short break. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. Well, for many people across the country, not for the folks in Manitoba right now, the end of the pandemic seems near. But there are a lot of questions left. 
Will you be able to mix and match vaccines to get a second shot? Will you need a vaccine passport to travel? And how did this all start anyway? Did the pandemic start in a lab in Wuhan, China? Let's find out. Joining us again is the health minister, Patty Haidu. Minister, the prime minister is going to the G7 uh, conference next month. One issue that will likely be discussed is vaccine passports. You've been on this program saying for the last more than month, you're working on that. Um, will Canada be participating in a vaccine passport program? Will people need to prove a double vaccine in order to travel to other countries? Uh, we're working right now on um, international vaccine certification. And I, we've talked about this before, as you know, and we know that um, as the world considers how to restore international travel, one of the concepts is in, indeed showing some evidence of vaccination. So there's two components, uh, entry into Canada. And as you can see from the previous topic on on, um, on alleviation of measures at the border, this is uh, this is one part of the consideration. The second part is what kinds of proof do Canadians need in order right. to enter other countries? And we're working on both those aspects. So, uh, do you know how soon we might see details on, I mean, look, people are getting their double shots very soon. People want to travel. They're, they're, they're talking about traveling. The border could open at any time. And by the way, I'd love to find out when the border might open. But when will we get details on, on these uh, potential vaccine passports? Well, in terms of inbound travel, which, you know, obviously you've seen the report, you've seen the recommendations of the report. Now we have to figure out, obviously, the operationalization of that and what that means. And that's exactly those kinds of questions, which vaccines and, and, and who, who's approved them and all of those kinds of questions. And those, those, that work is underway. And we should have answers for Canadians in the very near future, in, in weeks, I would say. In terms of outbound um, travel, that's a more complicated conversation because, of course, health information is actually not in the federal jurisdiction. And so again, it's a participation approach with provinces, uh, making sure that we protect people's privacy, but that they do have right. some evidence of vaccination that will allow them speedy entry into other countries. Will you, um, will the government be giving any more strong signals from a federal point of view on whether people can mix and match vaccines? You know, first shot of Pfizer, second of Moderna, or first shot of AstraZeneca, uh, which is a viral vector, and maybe a second shot of a um, mRNA vaccine like Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, well, yeah, yes, we're all anxiously awaiting advice from NASI, who's studying this issue as we speak, and looking at data from a number of other countries that have um, done studies in this particular area. And so uh, we should hopefully hear from NASI in the next week or so about the potential and the, uh, and the efficacy of right. mixing doses. The U.S. has so many vaccines. You literally have states saying we can't. We don't have even the arms to jab them in. They're, they're, they're begging people to come take them. They've got incentives out there because they can't get people to take them. Uh, there's a lot of border cities in Canada that are desperate. Uh, I think about Windsor. Why won't the government waive the quarantine period for people who drive across the border to get a vaccine in the States and get it for free there and quickly come back to Canada? Doesn't that seem prudent and sensible? Well, first of all, I'll just say the United States has been unequivocal that uh, vac getting vaccinated on the United States side is not a reason for crossing the border. So there, so, so that's the first piece, is that this is not considered a reason for essential travel by the United States. But can't you work on that? I just, I just, I'm sorry, I just, I'll just say, can't I'll just you just say work that. with the American government to, to fix that? Like New York State's like, come tourists, come to Times Square, we'll give you a free shot. Like, it seems that they're ready to do it. Can't we fix that? Isn't that what bilateral work? Uh, should do? 
Well, I have spoken with Secretary Becerra about a number of um, items last week, and of course, we'll be speaking with them again in the very near future. Uh, actually, on border management, that's one of the topic areas that we'll be we'll be covering. But as of now, this is their stance. Uh, the United States government does not feel that getting vaccinated is an essential purpose to cross the border. Would you Would you like to see that change? Well, I'll just say this: in in Windsor, for example, I mean, uh, the last time I checked, you know, there were a million and a half vaccines not administered of the over ten and a half million that Ontario has received. I think, you know, there are vaccines um, that are moving around the province on a regular basis, and I would just encourage um, cities to continue those communications with the province. And of course, um, more vaccines are coming in week over week. We we know millions are coming in over the next several weeks. Right. I, I did speak to the CEO of the Windsor Regional Hospital, and they're desperate to get those U.S. vaccines. There are 1.8 million Canadians who are fully vaccinated right now, Minister. Why is there no federal guidance in place for them to reduce their public health restrictions? Well, again, um, public health restrictions are, are not federal. These are provincial and in some cases local restrictions based on the epidemiology of that particular area. So you may be fully immunized, but if COVID is extremely severe in your region, you may be subject to public health measures because of the epidemiology. These are decisions that are made at the local and provincial level. And of course, um, you know, that's exactly as it should be. I want to talk about China. The U.S. and Canada now are both talking about investigating to see if the COVID pandemic actually started in a leak from a lab in Wuhan instead of an animal-to-human transmission. But in April of uh, 2020, a producer actually on this show, our CTV Question Period producer, asked you at a press conference if you could trust the numbers China was putting out around COVID. I, I want to play your response here because it was a, obviously a well-known response. I would say that your question is feeding into the conspiracy theories that many people have been perpetuating on the on the internet. And it's important to remember that there is no way to beat a global pandemic if we're actually not willing to work together as a globe. There's no indication that the data that came out of China uh, in terms of their infection rate and their death rate uh, was falsified in any way. So conspiracy theory. Um, now there's an investigation to see if they actually did falsify information and, and actually don't have the truth. Do you still believe those are conspiracy theories or do you think that we should be investigating the data coming out of China and the origins of the virus? Well, actually, that clip is talking about infection rates and death rates. And at that time, uh, the advice that I had from officials that were working uh, on the international aspect of COVID-19 was that there wasn't, an ev there wasn't evidence of falsification of case rates and death rates. I've always been clear that we need to know the origins of COVID-19. I think the world needs to know the origins of COVID-19 because, of course, we want to prevent future pandemics. And, of course, the WHO had a, you know, a special panel investigating those origins and, and expressed frustration at that time that they couldn't get full participation from the Chinese government. Uh, I think it's very important that we have full, uh, a full investigation of the origins of this virus so that we can put into place measures that protect us from another global pandemic. A couple more things, Minister. Uh, the Prime Minister, the Defence Minister, and the head of the Public Agency of Canada all knew that Major General Danny Fortin, who was leading the vaccine rollout for so long, was under investigation by the military. Uh, investigators in March while he was working, as you know, as part of the rollout. He was at then seconded to the Public Health Agency of Canada. Public Health Agency of Canada reports to you. Can you tell us when you learned about the investigation into Major General Fortin? Did you ever ask what the allegations were about? And did you ever think, 
as you know, I don't know what the results will be, but he he should step aside while there's an investigation. Well, I was made a, an aware of an issue uh, with Major General Danny Forte in March as well, and I was assured that a process was in place to manage allegations. And, um, you know, I was alerted to a further development in May and at that time agreed with the president that uh, Major General Danny Fortin should be relieved of his duties with the public health agency. Could you, as because the public health agency reports to you, uh, could you at the time have made a decision and said, look, I don't need to know the charges. I don't want to politically interfere with the investigation. But because he's now reporting directly to me, uh, well, there's an investigation. Why didn't you say, given what's going on in the military, I don't know what the allegations are. Until there's a, an independent investigation and results, he's got to step aside. Why didn't you do that? Well, it wasn't clear to me, um, Evan, at the beginning what the process was. And of course, uh, um, as I found out more about, uh, about the next steps, that's when I asked uh, President Stewart to look into it more, more closely. And President Stewart um, advised me that uh, he was asking Major General Danny Fortan to step, step aside, and I agreed with that decision. All right, I got to leave it there today. Health Minister Patty Heidi, great to have you on the program. Great to be with you, Evan. All right, coming up, a Canadian horror. A mass grave of 215 children was discovered in British Columbia this week at a former residential school. How was this hidden for so long? How many more of these hidden tragedies are there across the country? Coming up next, we'll be joined by the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde, to talk about this tragedy. Stay right here with Question Period. A mass grave of hundreds of children here in Canada. This is horrifying in a way that almost beggars words. A BC First Nation in Kamloops has found the remains of 215 children, some of them as young as three years old. They attended a residential school there, the Kamloops Indian Residential School. It ran from 1890 to 1969. By the way, it wasn't ended there. Then it ran under the supervision of the federal government until 1978. The chief of the First Nation, Roseanne Casimir, said these deaths are, quote, undocumented. In other words, their families never knew about it. They haven't been, quote, counted. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission did document the death of over 3,200 children who uh, died at residential schools. Some of them fled. The Minister of Indigenous Services, Mark Miller, tweeted out about this, calling it absolutely heartbreaking news, uh, saying he spoke to the chief this evening to offer full support to the Indigenous Services of Canada as the community and the surrounding communities honour and mourn the loss of these children. But who knew about this kind of thing? For how long? How many more mass graves of Indigenous children might there be? I want to get reaction to this horrifying story from the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde. National Chief, I almost don't... We knew the, they were out there. We knew from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that there were these graves, unmarked graves, but 215 children undocumented in a mass grave what is your reaction when you when you found out about this? Oh, you, you feel it's a, such a painful and, and tragic discovery, and it's sad. But it's it's not uncommon for residential schools for these these uh, graveyards or these hidden grave sites to, to be there. So it's very painful, and it's undocumented. I've said before that the residential schools was a genocide of our people. Here's just another glowing example of of that genocide in practice. 
undocumented deaths of children. It's total travesty. I, I want to focus on that because you said we've known about these unmarked graves. I, I, to be candid, I had no idea that there could be this many children. Uh, we don't know who these children are yet, but how many other mass graves might there be around residential schools? And, and what does that tell us about the, there could be untold numbers of children who were killed that we don't even oh. know about. Evan, there, there's, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work, you know, the former commissioners identified this as a, a huge issue that still needs more research and investigation. You need uh, ground sonar properly at all the 130 plus sites where these residential schools operated. And uh, there's got to be a lot of work done now because how can you bring about closure? How can you deal with this pain, this sense of loss without even knowing that your loved one is, is they'll use the excuse, oh, they ran away. Or they have no documentation of these children that have ran away, but they're, they, they've, they've experienced death and hurt and pain. And it's right, right across uh, the residential school system. So there's a lot more research that has to be done. Well, maybe they didn't run away. To get to the bottom but, of this. but this is the one thing. Maybe they didn't run away. Maybe they died and they were buried in these mass graves and they destroyed yeah. their records. How do we know? Exactly. Evan, you know, like the residential schools, there's a lot of starvation. There's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of abuse, physical, mental, sexual abuse. Um, so you're never gonna know. But again, the, the research has to start. In this one case, there's 215 bodies found. And, and, and so there has to be ceremony. There's gotta be protocol. There's gotta be proper um, things done in a good way so that right. there there is some closure uh, for the chief and council, the people at Kamloops, Chief Kazmer, but as well, again, uh, where are their relatives? Where, like, well, there's so much they... work now that has to get done to bring about closure and moving on and embracing reconciliation. We keep People keep talking about that, but look at what's going on here. Chief, National Chief, uh, when, when will we identify who these children are? When will their families know that their remains have been found? And when will there be accountability for the people who ran this school, I, I hesitate to use that word uh, because it's a total distortion of what that word actually means, uh, for some accountability. No, there's, there's so much, again, uh, with the discovery of, and the, the sad, tragic discovery of these 215 bodies, there's so much things now that are going to be turned up, you know, in terms of the proper research, the evidence, the DNA. Uh, you're not going to know, like, where these, there's death, no question, but how did they die? You know, why are they put in the mask? Like, there's so many questions that have to be answered. And then once you start getting all the information, then, the, of course, the appropriate families, they've got to be contacted. Then there's grief, there's loss, there's counseling, there's mental health issues. All these things are going to have to be looked after. Remember, this is just one residential school site. There's talk, and our elders have always talked about this being an issue in all the residential schools, about young people dying and just not being documented and just kind of put to the side. What a total disregard of life. What a total disregard of humanity. And this is something that really stirs your emotions. And uh, if people really want to, to, to embrace reconciliation, we got to look at the shared history and how do we move together and work together to build a better country. Uh, move travesty and hurt and pain. It's difficult times going forward. I, I, I want to ask you finally, what you think the federal government has to do. I, I know everyone's going to have words of sorrow and 
I, I think many communities have heard a lot of words and not a lot of action, as you've, you've talked about a lot. Does there's there got, need, to be, yeah, to, does be there need to be a special support. fund to now, as you said, to, to now do sonar and, and to get technology on 130 different residential school sites and figure out what the hell's going on, how many of these there could be? This is still unfinished work from the TRC for follow-up. This work needs to get done. Then, of course, the appropriate ceremonies and protocol, the elders to be brought in, all the research done, families need to be notified. So this is, again, a lot more work. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered, and the federal government does have a responsibility to make sure that these resources are in place to get the answers and get the work done. National Chief Perry Bellegarde, it is uh, one of the more sorrowful um, pieces of evidence we've ever seen in this country. Mass grave of 215 Indigenous children in Kamloops. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks for the opportunity, Evan. All right, coming up on this program, U.S. President Joe Biden has ordered the intelligence agencies in that country to look into if the COVID-19 virus spread from a research lab in Wuhan, China, not from animal to human transmission, as the WHO had previously said. Where does the Canadian government stand on one of the biggest questions of the pandemic? The Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau, is with us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So did the COVID-19 virus spread from a research lab in Wuhan, China? This has been the most controversial riddle in the global pandemic. How did it start? Now, the WHO says after their investigation, they believe COVID-19 uh, actually likely spread from two humans from an animal. But the U.S. is now not buying it. President Biden is asking his intelligence agencies to, quote, redouble their investigations into the cause of the virus spread. Check out what his deputy press secretary said. I think the most important thing is that the president um, has made uh, has made a decision to make sure that to get to the core, right, to really figure out where does this where did the origin come from, to do this additional 90 day review uh, after after asking his team to look into it into March uh, in March. And Prime Minister Trudeau agreed with the ongoing U.S. probe. We support. Uh, the, uh, the call by the United States and others uh, to better understand the origins of uh, COVID-19, uh, not just to ensure accountability, but also to make sure we fully understand how to better protect the world going forward. So is this really about the virus or is this about the growing competition between China and the rest of the world? And does Canada need to weigh in? To talk about that and much more, I'm now joined by Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau. Minister Garneau, always a pleasure. Is Canada investigating the possibility that the COVID-19 virus originated in the Wuhan Research Lab and did not actually come from an animal-to-human transmission? Well, you know, with this pandemic, which has literally affected the entire world and killed over 3 million people, uh, it is important that we do the science to figure out where it originated from because it may happen again. And so, therefore, we do support uh, President Biden's uh, uh, announcement earlier this week uh, to uh, to investigate more fully. Uh, when the World Health Organization report came out uh, uh, just a while back, we were one of a number of countries that criticized it for being incomplete because it did not address all of the data that needed to be addressed. And uh, so we uh, welcome this opportunity based on science. So that's interesting because Canadians are reading about this, Minister. They're, they're looking at stories that three 
Chinese scientists working at the Wuhan lab actually fell ill and were taken to hospital months before the pandemic. There's lots of ongoing threads. Is Canada doing its own investigation into the origins of the virus? Is Canada demanding that China become significantly more transparent about what happened in that lab and at the beginning of the pandemic? So what we're saying, Evan, is that the World Health Organization's report, which came out uh, a couple of months ago, did not really conclusively uh, answer the question of where did this pandemic come from? This pandemic that has turned the world upside down in the last 16 months, that has killed over 3 million people, we've all been affected by it. It would be a missed opportunity not to investigate as fully as possible, based on the science, where this virus originated from. And that's what we are supporting. And for that reason, we support what, uh, what President Biden is, uh, is asking to, for us to do. Uh, Minister, it's interesting. If Canada doesn't believe that the WHO investigation was transparent, we know it was tightly controlled by the Chinese. Why was Canada following advice from the WHO about the pandemic, if now the assumption is that the WHO is getting faulty, incomplete, and non-transparent information from China about the virus, and yet we use that information fundamentally to base our entire pandemic response on. Is, is that a problem? No, well, I would say it's two different things here. The World Health Organization has a great deal of expertise and provides advice to countries like Canada. Uh, and uh, we are there to to follow that uh, for the advice that we believe is is good advice. But for us to uh, investigate the origin of this virus is a separate matter, and that is something that requires an in-depth look, so that we can try to uh, really come to a conclusion about where this virus originated from. And as I said. The World Health Organization report that came out a couple of months ago was not conclusive and it was not thorough. And therefore, and we said so at the time yeah. with uh, about a dozen other countries. Uh, fair to say then that, that Canada does not trust the Chinese explanation on the origins of the uh, pandemic. Well, we think that the answer remains uh, to be found and we need to do some further probing on this. And that's what we support. Minister, the Globe and Mail has reported extensively that scientists at Canada's highest security infectious disease lab in Winnipeg are working closely with Chinese military researchers on deadly pathogens, very similar to what we're talking about here. They're working in that high security lab. Two scientists in that lab, as the Globe reported, were fired earlier this year after CSIS, our uh, National Intelligence Service, had concerns about national security. And I spoke to the former head of CSIS and the former National Security Advisor, both to Prime Minister Harper and Prime Minister Trudeau, Dick Fadden. I want to show you what he said. I think we should say to the Chinese, there are a dozen or so or 20 subject areas where we are not going to allow you to work with our universities. Uh, because even if the, the intellectual property that's being acquired is, becomes public, we're advancing their interest and not ours by allowing the use of our of our facilities and the intelligence of our professors. I think we need to say enough is enough. So what's your reaction? Is Canada ready to say enough is enough and ban researchers with connections to the Chinese military and the Chinese government access to research at, at high security areas and, and, and sensitive research? Well, uh, we announced uh, fairly recently that uh, we are in discussions with universities that carry out research and world-class research 
so that they are aware of when we do work with other countries uh, that it is extremely important for us to ensure that uh, we are also mindful of the intellectual property that is at stake. And that is something the Minister Champagne spoke about recently. All right, I've got to leave it there. Um, Mark Garneau, Minister of Foreign Affairs, appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. All right, when we come back, Quebec plans to amend the Constitution with its new language bill. But what are the long-term consequences of such a change? Why are the federal leaders supporting it so readily? The Scrum is next, and we have a special guest, the former Justice Minister, now Independent MP, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Stay right here with Question Period. So is Canada headed into another constitutional crisis? Well, not if the federal leaders can help it. After the Quebec Premier Francois Legault tabled a controversial language bill that calls for a unilateral change to the Constitution that would recognize Quebec as a nation and its only official language as French, some expected political fireworks. After all, this is the stuff of Meech Lake, of the Charlottetown Accord, altering the Constitution, using the notwithstanding clause... But no fireworks, instead crickets. All three major federal leaders quickly agreed Quebec is actually within its rights to change the Constitution. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, actually on this program last week, said actually only Quebec could amend the Constitution. Basically, this is asymmetrical federalism in the extreme. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney already voicing his admiration for Quebec on this issue. So will Alberta be next in a long line of premiers who may demand their own special conditions in Canada's constitution? Is this really about the law or is this the raw politics of an election in Quebec? To talk about that, the Scrum is here. Joyce Napier is our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. We also have Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the independent MP and the former Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Good morning to everyone, and Jody Wilson-Rabel, I'm going to start with you because you stopped unanimous support in the House for Quebec's bill in the House of Commons on Wednesday. You subsequently said in a tweet that silence from federal leaders on this issue is, quote, cowardice. Explain what you mean by cowardice, and do you think Quebec doesn't then have the right to unilaterally change the Constitution on this issue? Well, I mean, first of all, I, uh, I I spoke out and said no to the unanimous consent motion, and um, I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised that, that nobody else actually said no um, in addition to my no. Um, and the reason why I, I did, one, I was um, quite surprised with the wording um, of the motion, and two, I think that matters around the wording and matters around the Constitution um, should not be um, debated, or sorry, in this case, not debated, um, through unanimous consent motions. These are incredibly important issues that require parliamentarians to, to chime in, to have debate, to, to study it, to understand its meaning, um, you know, the substance of what's being put forward, and to also focus on, on, on the process. There's, it's um, a unanimous consent motion to, to speak to um, a amending the Constitution is not the way to go. I mean, I understand that, you know, my saying no to the unanimous consent motion is going to delay this and, and likely come back as an opposition day motion. But at least in that case, uh, members of Parliament will have to stand up and debate and, and will have to actually right. vote. And there certainly was not unanimity. unanimity. Um, I received many messages from many MPs from all the recognized parties after, oh. uh, after that day. 
Okay, I'm going to come back as a former justice minister. What concerns you, I'll go to Joyce. When Jody Wilson-Raybould says it's cowardice, clearly this may not be about constitutional issues at all, but about politics. It's always about politics, isn't it, in Ottawa? Um, but, you know, Jody says it, these are important issues. Yeah, indeed, very important. Also, extremely complex. And, you know, it only takes, what, four or five years for Justin Trudeau to change his mind. I'm going to bring you back to a few years ago. You remember Philippe Couillard? He was the premier of Quebec. And he wanted to bring Quebec into the 1982 constitution, wanted it to sign. Justin Trudeau said, oh, my God, just shoo, shoo, go away. No way we are going to reopen the constitution. I remember... Uh, Meech Lake. I remember when Meech Lake died, uh, Charlottetown. I remember the 95 uh, referendum. I mean, the Canada looked at this as, as children look at their parents when they're divorcing. It was like, it was heartbreaking. Like, people were crying. People were, it was, it was a very emotional, the country is going to break. Fast forward to, to now, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead, Francois. Do whatever, unilateral, go for it. Let's uh, all keep quiet. There are 78 seats in Quebec. François, uh, Philippe, you know, François Legault, sorry, is a very popular premier. There's an election coming up. You asked me if this is political. I think the answer, mm. the short, short answer is yes. Yeah, and, and obviously the politics are so overwhelming. And, and Marika, all the federal leaders, without even, as Jody Wilson-Ribble said, without even studying it, the implications of the use of the notwithstanding clause, the implications of what this could mean uh, going forward, what do you take about what it means? And, and maybe the implications when you see someone like Jason Kenney saying, wow, this is fantastic. I admire what Quebec's doing. I think the political implications are actually highlighted by, by what Ms. Wilson-Raybould said, that she got messages from people in other parties raising concerns and, and thanking her for raising those issues. And we have also heard from MPs who have stayed silent on their dissent to this. I think that shows or underscores just how political this is. And it'll be interesting to see how the party leaders manage their caucus towards an election and to see whether that stays within their caucus meetings or whether it eventually does bubble out before the next election. I think that obviously it, it cannot be taken for granted that the West is looking at this you know, just before the pandemic, if you can if you can cast your mind back to a year and a half ago, that's what all of Ottawa, all of Canada was seized with talking about anxiety within Western separatism. So I don't think the two can be separated. And I think it is a risky thing for politicians to be monitoring. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, you, I mean, you're dual hatted in this. You've got the political hat, which I know you understand, but you're the former justice minister. You know, we've all read articles of some constitutional scholars saying they can't do it, they can. Some are saying they're concerned that Quebec might flex its constitutional muscles, use the notwithstanding clause. This would be the third time in about two years that they're threatening or using it. And that minorities might say, gosh, what does this mean for us going forward if provinces can just sort of overturn the charter? What concerns you the most about the consequences of what Quebec's doing or the potential consequences? Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the comments from from Joyce and Marika are, and, you know, premiers across the country exemplify um, the importance of, of this discussion and how individuals are weighing in differently. Constitutional experts um, have weighed in on either side, whether or not the Quebec can amend unilaterally or not. But this is um, a direct reason why we have to have these discussions. Certainly internal matters to Quebec um, can be amended by way of you know, 
amending formula in Section 45, but uh, in terms of, of the Quebec language, in terms of how, um, you know, declaring uh, Quebec is a nation and that French is the official language of Quebec, these have implications in, in a broader sense. One, you mentioned minority rights in Quebec, certainly um, issues of, of Indigenous peoples and nationhood and language within Quebec and broadly across the country come into play, but these are discussions that we need to have and certainly, um, you know, under another section, section 43 of the amending formula in the Constitution Act 1982, it requires resolution by the House of Commons and the Senate and to have leaders of parties um, remain silent on these important issues. I, I would place um, the importance of upholding our Constitution over political expediency any day, and I um, hope that members of Parliament will speak up and not be guided and told what to do by their political leaders. Uh, Jordy not on something this important. Jordy was horrible. Just last thing, I mean, the Prime Minister, he was the first to come out and said he kind of supports this. Uh, yeah, that they have the right in his reading. Do you think he made a mistake uh, in not only the substance, but in the timing of his response? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, I mean, and this is just the, the Prime Minister specifically, but it's, um, as Joyce was talking about, being mindful that there is a potential election on the horizon and, um, you know, taking your, or having your actions guided by potential elections or losing votes in, in Quebec is simply um, not leadership in my mind. Leadership of, of the Prime Minister must be to uphold the Constitution and whether or not he was, he received information or an opinion from the Department of Justice, which I'd love to read, um, but those and what that said and the implications of that, those are the discussions that we need to have. And, and certainly I, I would have uh, hoped that the, the Prime Minister would have um, been a little bit more reflective before coming out in terms of what he said. All right, I got to leave it there uh, this weekend. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Marika Walsh, Joyce Napier, thanks to the three of you for joining us and thank all of you for watching and engaging in the good political discussions in this country. Country. I'll see you on PowerPlay at CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. We are back here in seven short days, if it's safe, and boy, we hope it gets safe soon. Hug your loved ones. See you soon.